Dear White Women supports the Department of Health and Human Services COVID-19 education campaign, We Can Do This, efforts to increase education and awareness about COVID-19 vaccines. Whether due to language barriers or lack of access to healthcare, many Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders face unique challenges to getting accurate vaccine information. We hope that amplifying these resources, especially in other languages, will help reach and protect our most vulnerable communities. Please visit vaccines.gov for more information. So continuing on with this focus on our Asian stories during Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month this May, we want you to join us in dismantling one of the most harmful stereotypes of Asian Americans, that of the model minority. But what is it exactly? Well, it's the thing that had the guidance counselor at my high school tell my friend that he should be doing better in math because he's Japanese or my other high school friend who ended up in AP math because she was Asian of Korean descent, though she didn't feel like she belonged there. It's the stereotypical Asian dad who tends to be slight framed and nerdy, but successful, say like a scientist or a doctor or someone involved in some sort of numbers oriented career. The model minority myth is also the Asian moms who are now referred to as tiger moms who enforce strict piano or violin lessons and expect nothing but A plus on report cards. It's really the thing that has us believe that all Asians are subservient, meek, and here for our pleasure, and may keep some people of Asian descent from getting, say, like those promotions because they're not seen as leaders, and so they may be simply overlooked. Now, having said all that, some people might think, as stereotypes go, it seems like a great thing to be called, right? Nope. So today, we're going to talk about why we stand against this idea of Asian people being thought of as a model minority. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women uproot systemic racism by using their privilege. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. So you just heard some examples of that stereotype, but why is the model minority myth so bad? The model minority demographic has members who are seen to have achieved higher socioeconomic status than the average population, and so shouldn't need any governmental support. This myth stereotypes all Asian Americans as part of a monolithic group that works hard, is polite, law-abiding, and generally humble and successful. It says that all Asians are this way. And there are some big problems with this. So let's just dive into them. Let's go. Yeah. Yes. For one, are Asians one big giant monolith? Are we all the same? I think you probably know the answer to this, but just in case you do not, the answer is absolutely not. In fact, there are 48 countries with just as many different languages and cultures and customs and history within that bucket of Asian, according to the UN. And that includes countries within East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Central, and Western Asia. Though, if you're thinking about the U.S. and for perspective, 85% of the Asian groups in the United States consist of people descended from China, India, the Philippines, Vietnam, Korea, and Japan. Plus, add to that the different stages of immigration that people in America of Asian descent might have, like you might be an immigrant yourself, or you may be third generation, or even fifth generation, and have little to no connection with the ethnicity of your descent. Side note, and yet just because we have Asian-looking faces, how many Asian people are asked if they speak the language? Oh, it's like the first thing people ask, right? Oh, you're Japanese. Do you speak the language? All the time. Right? Every time. However, if your grandparents immigrated from, let's say, Germany, 
have you ever been asked if you speak German, at least in like the first 12 questions that people ask about you? But the point being, you know, this example is just one of them. There are a lot of differences to consider. You know, going back to the second problem I have with this, I guess, is that that model minority myth sort of posits this question, but have we as Asians always had it easy in the United States? And the answer is no. We've already discussed the anti-Asian hate in last week's episode. I mean, there's a huge long history in the United States of that, but we'll also in this episode dive a little bit more into the discriminatory laws and immigration policies we've come up against in the United States. And three, has the model minority myth and its sort of sneaky ideas of making Asian people more white adjacent actually been harmful to both individuals and Asians as a group? The answer is yes. Because even if you look at the statistics today, the disparity within Asian groups is huge and we are clearly not white. And so the same questions about identity and belonging come up and not to mention the many cultural influences we all have to navigate. And so the model minority myth and its white adjacency really just seeks to erase all of those challenges we feel both individually and also as a group. Right. So I'd say that's a great introduction to the model minority myth. But if you know the show, you know we're going to peel away the layers like an onion, right? So let's dive in a little bit more. Is it so lame? When you said onion, I was like, do you wear onion goggles when you cut the onions? What? No. (laughs) I know people have these things called onion goggles. I actually thought you were going to say, because this is what I was envisioning when I said onion, the awesome blossom thing at Outback Steakhouse, you know, that just like, you can't see this, obviously, if you're listening, but I'm making this shape with my hands, like the onion unfolding into a flower of onion goodness. Oh, no. You're like, no. Okay. All right. Cool. (laughs) All right. Anyway, where did this term come from? So the term model minority was coined by a sociologist named William Peterson in 1966 when he wrote a piece holding up the success of Japanese Americans and their ability to overcome discrimination, saying that it is due to their family structure and culture of hard work. However, what Peterson's paper did not take into account was that just one year earlier, the Immigration and Naturalization Act, also known as the Hart seller Act, of 1965 had gotten rid of previous immigration restrictions or basically a quota system based on what country you were from. Meaning until that point, until the later 1900s, which is more like just over 50 years ago, if you're really putting this in perspective, there was very, very, very limited immigration allowed from Asia. Let's do a quick dive into the history of this limited immigration because it might give you some perspective on just what's happened regarding people of Asian descent in the United States. But, you know, if we're looking at the super bottom line here, Asian people were not allowed into the United States en masse until practically this last generation. Unbelievable, right? When you look around now. So let's get into those details. So let's go all the way back in history a little bit here. It's called the Naturalization Act of 1790. And in it, only free white people of air quote, good character, who had lived in the United States for two years or longer were allowed to apply for citizenship. So at that point in the United States, anybody could come in, select few white people could have the privileges of citizenship. Then in the 1800s, and in particular after the War of 1812 between U.S. and Great Britain, there was a huge influx of white immigrants from Europe. This is where the Irish and German waves came in meaning there were even more white people who could eventually become naturalized citizens. Then you have the Naturalization Act of 1870, which passed after the Civil War, which meant that now people of European and African descent could were allowed to be citizens. But this act excluded the thousands of Asian workers who had come in from China to help build the transcontinental railroad. So then what happened? 
to the Chinese people from then on. More barriers. There were continued barriers in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. It was actually the first American policy that specifically restricted one particular ethnic group from immigration. It was done because white workers blame the Chinese workers for low wages. So now neither skill nor unskilled Chinese workers were allowed to enter the country. And then because of an extension, this lasted until the early 1900s. Literally, this Chinese Exclusion Act barred Chinese people from entering this country. So then you have the early 1900s and you add on things like the yellow peril stereotype that we spoke about in last week's episode. That was the one on anti-Asian racism isn't new people right? And then along with the Japanese-U.S. relationship, which turned to the point where immigration from Japan was limited in this so-called gentleman's agreement. And basically, Asians were not particularly welcomed in the United States. So moving from there, then came the Immigration Act of 1917 that created a, quote, Asiatic barred zone, or in other words, specific areas from which people could not immigrate, which included nearly all of Asia, aside from Japan and the Philippines, Then the Immigration Act of 1924, which set a quota that only 2% of the total number of people in the United States of a certain country's nationality as of the 1890 census could obtain visas. Recall that many white immigrants had already come over from Europe prior to World War I, and so this percentage-based policy, if you're doing the math in your head, allowed relatively more Europeans to enter. So then, even if we just gloss over and by no means are we suggesting that we do so, the atrocities of the Japanese internment in this country where 120,000 people of Japanese descent were relocated to camps and lost all their belongings during World War II, you know that there simply weren't many people of Asian descent in this country, let alone compared to that number to the white people who let's remember were also of foreign descent. And I think it's important to note here also that when you're thinking about Peterson's paper, right? He's writing about the success of the Japanese after they were interned, all their belongings, livelihood taken away from them. So that's also a very important historical reference that we think about. And then finally, circling back to where we started this section, we have the post-World War II Hart-Seller Act, which finally lifted those country of origin restrictions and put emphasis on categories like family reunification, skilled labor, and refugees. That meant that after allowing in families of people who were already in the United States, the next tier of immigrants admitted were skilled laborers, professionals, and scientists. So what was the upshot to that? Well, after 1965, a whole bunch of doctors and engineers from Asia were allowed to immigrate to the United States. Yeah, all of that you hear. And it is surprising because like we've said, this stuff isn't taught. In fact, on Instagram, actually, I just had someone comment and saying, I didn't even know about the Chinese Exclusion Act until I did this in my graduate program, and it was for independent study. It wasn't taught as part of a curriculum. These sorts of histories are not widely talked about in our school curriculum right now. So don't be surprised if you didn't know it, but I'm really glad you're learning it now. But I guess going back to the model minority myth, in a lot of ways, it wasn't so much that their inherent like Asian-ness was a model, but that the first generation of immigrants allowed into the United States from Asia at that time consisted of people who had successful, air quote, qualifications. You know, the gates had finally opened to Asian immigrants, but there were really selective gates and they were really people who were skilled laborers at that point. So by referring to this model minority's perceived collective success, without putting their arrival into historical context, people can really point to Asian people and say, Well, see, they're able to overcome racism. They were able to make it. 
And that attitude minimized then and still does now the struggles that other minorities like Black people have to face based on their history in this country. Right. Because the other important point about Peterson's paper, it was written in 1966, which, if you're thinking about American history, was in the middle of the civil rights era in the United States and right at the time when many white people were concerned about the organizing done by Black Americans to demand rights that they should have had all along. So in creating a model minority, Peterson wasn't just hurting Asians, which he did. He was effectively creating a divide between Asians and any other marginalized group in this country, especially Black and Brown people, which is a divide that has largely existed or has existed in some forms to this day. So given this, when we have people trying to have these two groups of people pointing fingers at one another, saying Asians aren't standing up against Black racism and Black people are attacking Asian people, the reality is that these are distractions. We need to keep focused on the systemic racism against any non-white individuals that people experience collectively in this country and not get up, get caught up in smaller fights like this because we know how they were constructed in the first place now. We have to be in it together. So that's more of the systemic overview of the model minority myth and the history behind it. On an individual level, this also allows people to assume that Asians who haven't attained expected levels of, quote, success, heavy air quotes there, must have some kind of deficiency or didn't make enough effort for which they can be overlooked or made to feel inadequate. The model minority fifth myth really focuses on exceptionalism and reduces the real life identity struggles, discrimination, and harms that Asian individuals experience. We spoke about that in our conversation with Alan Mack a few weeks ago about his experience growing up as ethnically Chinese in America, to immigrant parents in a predominantly white suburb of New York, and even being, quote, erased, really, by his white friend in the restaurant when she sort of off the cuff exclaimed that they were the only two white people in here. Yet he knew every moment growing up that he wasn't sure where he fit in the most given his looks and sensibilities and languages that he spoke at home and outside of the home and more. Yeah. You know, speaking of his experience with immigrant parents, I think the model minority myth also denies the realities of immigration in that most Asian adults in the United States are in fact foreign born. You know, according to Pew Research, Asian Americans are projected to be the nation's largest immigrant group by the middle of the century, surpassing Hispanics by 2055. By then, Asians are expected to make up 36% of all immigrants, while Hispanics will make up 34%. And this is just according to some population projections, again, from Pew Research. They say that around 6 in 10 Asian Americans, so just about 57%, including 71% of Asian American adults, were born in another country. By comparison, 14% of all Americans and 17% of all adults were born elsewhere. So if you think about what we just mentioned regarding that tightly held immigration structure and allowance for Asians until sort of the middle of the 1900s, this modern immigration wave from Asia has accounted for a quarter of all immigrants who've arrived in the U.S. since 1965. I mean, that's a huge population of immigrants in this country. And more importantly, it's a huge swing and a huge increase in one generation. According to Pew Research, Asians now make up about 7% of the nation's overall population, and their numbers are projected to surpass 46 million by 2060, nearly four times their current total. So the immigrant experience, I mean, you and I, as daughters of immigrants, we can speak to this, is different than that of people who grew up in this country. And that includes differences in what languages are spoken inside the home, what foods might be purchased and prepared, you know, the need to find 
a home located in a place where it's possible to kind of access foods that are of your home nation. I mean, we talked about it, Misasha, you and I, like living near H Mart or other stores has been a huge must for both of us. And going back to those differences, it also includes differences in how you view yourself. You know, my mom sees herself as Asian. I am Asian American. It, the labels that we put on ourselves, depending on, on our immigration story, can also be really, really different. But I feel like it explains why so many Asian populations are clustered in centers that offer things like Chinatown or Japan towns. I mean, it sort of sheds a little light on the immigration patterns in the U.S. and concentrations of diversity. But it leads me to question, how does this tie into this whole idea of success and the model minority myth when it's not just, if you will, skilled laborers who are coming into this country anymore? Right. I think that's such an important question. And another important question is, is this country really all that great for Asian immigrants? Because Sarah, as you noted, it's not just skilled laborers. We also have undocumented Asian immigrants coming into this country. So there's a whole range, just like there's a whole range of Asians in the monolith Asian category. There's a whole range of immigration experiences here. You know, based on data from 2018, also from Pew Research, it's not that great because, and not for all Asians, because income inequality in the US is greatest among Asians. From 1970 to 2016, the gap in the standard of living between Asians near the top and Asians at the bottom of the income ladder nearly doubled. And the distribution of income among Asians transformed from being one of the most equal to being the most unequal among America's major racial and ethnic groups. In this process, Asians displace Black people as the most economically divided racial or ethnic group in the United States. And this is, again, according to Pew Research. While Asians overall rank as the highest earning racial and ethnic group in the U.S., it's not a status shared by all Asians. Again, from 1970 to 2016, the gains in income for lower income Asians trailed well behind the gains for their counterparts in other groups. So for example, the median household income varied from 100,000 among Indians to 36,000 among Burmese. And poverty rates ranged as high as 35% among Burmese and 33% among the Bhutanese. So let's compare those numbers, just even some of those you know, Asian numbers that I just discussed to white and black and Hispanic adults in the United States. So in that same period, the median annual income for Asian adults was $51,288 compared with $47,000, well, almost $48,000 for white people, a little over $31,000 for Black people, and right around $30,000 for Hispanics. And incomes are adjusted for household size and expressed in 2016 dollars. So Asians also held the edge in standard of living over other groups at the top of the income distribution. But the income of Asians at the 90th percentile was 13% higher than the income of whites at the 90th percentile in 2016. So that's almost 134,000 versus 118,000. Upper income Black Americans at 80,000 and Hispanics at 77,000 had a similar standard of living in 2016. And both were outdistanced by Asian and white people by a wide margin. So when you're thinking about the top of that income scale, right? You've got Asians, the highest earning Asians and white people with a much higher average household income than Black people and Hispanics, even those who are the highest earning in their categories within their racial and ethnic makeup. But the problem is always in assuming that the average is the truth for everyone in that group. Also, according to Pew Research, Asians at the 90th percentile, if you remember, they had an income 
of over $133,000, but Asians in the 10th percentile, their income was under $13,000. That's, it's a huge, huge disparity, you know, and it's really interesting to me to hear you say that it is one of the widest disparities in all the ethnic groups in this country, because so often, because you look at the averages and you see Asian people make so much money compared to even white people, they're so successful. You do not look at the details and they are devastating. You know, the other thing to point out about the reality of the immigration system in the U.S. is that even if people were licensed in their home countries for other work, they often have to start again with years of education and certification when they get here. So when you combine stuff like regardless of their skill set when they come into this country, then you have historic legacy and educational opportunities and the immigration experience and discrimination. There's a huge difference in things like these numbers that you just talked about. We cannot be treating Asians as this singular grouping. And we cannot be okay with singling out Asians as the like safe minority, the trusted one, the non-threatening minority. It's a really dangerous cycle for both white and Asian people in that it perpetuates untruths and works to keep white supremacy front and centered and sort of unchallenged in the end. And Sarah, you said this earlier, but it's worth repeating, right? Because at the end of the day, people of Asian descent are not white. We face questions of identity, belonging, and what makes us American enough pretty much all day long. For anybody who's ever asked an Asian person, no, but where are you really from? When they say something like California, right? Did your eyes just fully roll back in your head? Yes. Yeah. You know what we're talking about then. We had a conversation recently that made us think, wait a moment. I know people whose grandparents are from England and I never recall anybody ever asking them where they're really from right? This idea prevails that whiteness belongs in America and other races and identities somehow do not. Now, one final thought to those who say, let's not make it all about race. Sure. You know, there may be instances of discrimination or harassment or hate that are not about race. As we've discussed, Asians are not a monolith, but when we consider the model minority myth and how it plays out in Asian communities itself, it's dangerous to outright dismiss the perspective that it's not about race. Because what white adjacency has showed us, and by white adjacency, it's this idea of, like we said earlier, oh, Asian people are just as successful as white people. They have it good. They don't need support. You know, it's showed us that regardless of how close Asians may be to white people or may perceive themselves, you know, to be in line with white people in terms of education or opportunities or lifestyle and so much more, in the end, there's still a division. And there is a huge disparity in the Asian experience in America. And so this is why we continue to stand against the model minority myth. And we welcome you to challenge these beliefs too. learn about and celebrate all of our differences and recognize that there is a power in those differences. Love what you're hearing. Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces. 